So we are in John chapter 13. Let's start with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so recap. Uh, I'm going to use the screen. Is the screen helpful? I forgot my laptop last week, but I, we used it in the other room. Uh, I'm in John 12. That's not even correct, close to correct. We're in John 13, right? At one point, I'm going to get this right. There we go. Yeah, that's New King James Version up on the screen. And uh, that is still in chapter... Yeah, okay, now we're there. We read, last week we read all of this about the washing of the feet. Remember? And what's the point of the washing of the feet? Somebody want to summarize that? What is it? Look at what he says. Right there, like verse 15, right? For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. A servant is not greater than his master. I guess that's a good place, right? So what is he saying? He's saying you're going to have to follow after me. You're going to have to do, it, do things like I do things, right? To be a disciple is to be like your, your master. Good so far? Easier said than done, right? Because what's he about to do? Die. Yeah, <laughs> to suffer, to die, to go to the cross, right? Um, so he's kind of setting them up a little bit, is what I would say. He's giving them an example, and, and it certainly is a true example that a servant is not greater than his master in the church. The church has this whole upside-down view of hierarchy, where it's not like the pastor's the most important guy. He's actually the least important guy in a sense of the hierarchy. I'm here to serve you. I'm not here to be to lord over you. you know? It's pretty cool, though. I do have a throne, right? I got the big chair. <laughs> <laughs> Bow before me, you know, <laughs> funny. Um, but no, I'm there to serve you, right? So I take the gifts from the altar and bring them to you, right? The word is proclaimed from God's throne to you. Baptism, the water comes out of the font and it gets put on you, that kind of thing. Um, so serving you. Now, uh, 18. We, I think we only touched on 18 and 20 last week. Does that sound right? Anybody remember who's here? Mm. We kind of talked about it. All right. Because this, this is all getting us to Judas. Um, everybody likes to talk about Judas, which is really weird. But they do. I always want to know. It's like, why did Judas, Judas do that? And, you know, did his guts really come out when he hung? Yeah, discuss. The kids want to know this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. So he says, I don't speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled, quote, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, end quote. All right, so we're going to look at the quote. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it come, does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So he does this all the time through the gospels, right? I gave you many of those, chapter 14, chapter 16, or, and then even Old Testament texts like Ezekiel 24, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 46. Those are all listed there in the paragraph where Jesus fulfills what had been said in days of old. Right? Or he points forward to the things that would happen. Welcome. All right. Uh, and so he's telling you this so that when it does happen, you're like, ah, okay, that's right. He told me. Many of the things that happen in John's gospel, they're completely clueless. They remember what he said, but they don't understand it until later. And John even, uh, if you didn't study with us back in March, when did we stop? March? Yeah, beginning of the year. Uh, it's often that John even will put a parenthetical note in. These things they did not comprehend then, but later they would understand. All right, and, and that's really important because what, what's happening there is the evangelist is giving you a clue that they were paying attention, but they didn't always understand. But they were paying attention so much so that they would be witnesses, right? They would see, and then they would record for you. Okay, so th this is a key theme in John's gospel, and since it's been like, whatever, six months since we've studied, <laughs> um, it's worth repeating and reminding you today um, that John is considered the, he considers himself an eyewitness, um, his, he considers his gospel eyewitness testimony. Right? These things are written, this is at the conclusion of the book, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that by believing you would have life in his name. Right? He was, has seen, has borne witness, and we know that his testimony is true. I'm quoting the gospel. I mean, we know that his testimony is true because he has borne witness, right? 
So that's important because it's going to come up here in a minute. All right. Anyway, uh, but Jesus himself does this. He says, I'm going to tell you something now. You're not going to understand it now, but later you'll figure it out. And then uh, it will all make sense to you. Most, it's like a, it's like a mystery novel, isn't it? Right? Where they drop all the, the breadcrumbs. Of course, then there's people like Agatha Christie, and she does something that they call red herrings, you know, like the false, where she distracts you from the real conclusion by sending you down a false trail. They call them red herrings. Anybody know that? Where does that come from? Is red her- are red herrings, like, not tasty or something? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody have to look, Google it and find out what... Where that, why that term was coined for it. But you know, like, there's, there's the conclusion, but then she sends you off on goose chases to distract you from the conclusion that ultimately would be true. Jesus doesn't do that. He's laying, he's laying all the, you know, the breadcrumbs, you know, like Hansel and Gretel, so that they could, you can find your way back to things like, oh, I get it now. All right. Following? All right. I know it's been a long morning, but a little energy. Most assuredly, I say to you, or truly, truly, or what's the other translation? Verily. verily, verily, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, what I told you is that this chapter, this is Holy Week, this is the night he was betrayed, this is, this is the long, only in John's Gospel, the beginning of a long discourse. All right, all the way through to chapter 17. He's going to be talking and talking and talking. It's like the worst sermon ever. It just keeps going and going and going. It's a joke. It's the best sermon ever. It's Jesus speaking, right? But, um, uh, but he's actually telling you about a theme that he's actually going to flesh out even more later on. And it's, it's basically this idea. You have Father. You have Son. Of course, you have Spirit, which he doesn't quite let you know about yet here. And, of course, there's you. Right? The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit is sent to you that you would believe not only in the Spirit, but in the Son, and by believing in the Son, you believe in the Father. You got that? It's like a chain of command or a uh, telephone game, I guess. Except it's not really a telephone game, because this Father, Son, and Spirit is one God, right? So it's three persons working together in unity, all so that you would believe in them. So they all three working together for you and for your salvation, leading you back into faith and into him. Does that follow? So that's all that's right there in verse 20, except for the spirit part, which he'll which we'll flesh out as he gets into the sermon. So this is like, I, I mentioned this last week, and if you, did anybody need last week's handout? You can look at this. It's confusing because it has the same chapter and verse on it, but it actually has a different date. So pass those around, grab one if you don't have one. Um, there's... In the introduction on there, I, I note that a lot of scholars, just pass the table to David, called uh, chapter 13 the beginning of the book of glory. Chapters 1 through 12 were the book of the signs. All right? So if you remember the cha- beginning of chapter of the book, uh, the gospel, chapter 1, chapter 1 began with what we call the prologue. You remember that? So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It sounds... Um, you know, just imagine Charlton Heston reading it. You know, it's very whatever Charlton Heston is. Is he? Did he die? Yes. He did finally die. He was like 90-something, right? Yeah. You know, Moses' voice, the voice of God, or James Earl Jones or something, right? Some bold and dramatic voice. Chapter 13 actually begins the same way, or very similar, with a prologue. So if we scroll all the way back, sorry for that. See, it's like now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's like, that's not direct narration about what's, what's happening, right? It's this overarching view of what's about to happen. So this is actually a prologue as well. And even um, verse 3 repeats it, right? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. Those are all the themes we heard back in chapter one in that prologue. So that's why people say this is the beginning of a whole nother, you know, it's like volume one, volume two. It's one gospel, but volume one, volume two. All right. So I don't know why I told you all of that. Oh, because of this idea that all the way from chapter 13 until the beginning of 14, um, we have many of these kind of prologue ideas 
Sorry for scrolling so much. So even here, uh, we need to read this. This is our reading for today. There's some prologue ideas here again, where he's pointing forward to things that are going to be talked about later on, but they only hint at them. All right. So uh, who wants to read? Read uh, 21 to 24. Nice and loud. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was learning, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Alright. Now it sounds like just direct narration, but there's actually something here that is, um, verses 23 and 24 is pointing forward to a whole conversation that's going to come later about um, this relationship with Peter and John. And actually it keeps spinning out into the book of Acts, right? As to like, who's in charge? Who's going to sit at your right hand and your left hand? That'll come up, right? And it came up already in the synoptics as far as timeline. So what's the relationship of John and Peter? And of course the Pope likes to talk about this because of course Peter's in charge, you know, and John is secondary to the Pope. Uh, but it doesn't actually appear that way in John's gospel. He's a little higher view of him. Um, there's the picture in velvet, slightly dusty, but uh, mostly dusty. But you can see the guy leaning on him, right? So that was, that's the youngest guy in the picture, likely, and that's probably, I think we argued that's the evangelist. Um, well, we know it's the evangelist, the beloved disciple. There's, there, there is conversation about today. Actually, scholars today have shifted in the last 10 years or so, just saying that, that the guy who's leaning on, on Jesus there isn't the same one writing the gospel. Yeah, because they're like, how do you have known people in the, in the course of yeah, the Yeah, it, it has to do with him knowing the pre- high priestly family. But um, I still hold to kind of the traditional view because I don't see any reason to dispute it. Um, it's like, it does seem kind of weird that a, a fisherman from Galilee would know the high priest in Jerusalem, right? That does seem a little bit odd. So you might, um, if it is two different people, at least the gospel approaches them as, a, as if they're one. It just kind of puts them together. Um, and actually that comes up in this reading too, but that's another story for another day. All right, so when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. So to the question about what's the big deal with Judas, notice, is Jesus happy about Judas betraying him? No, that word for troubled, that's verse 21, right? Yeah, uh, it says that he was, it's to be like um, disturbed or I'm trying to think what another translation would be. Uh, I'm looking it up here. To be like confounded or confused or to be, Agitated. What does your say? Agitated. Agitated. Is that what it says? Thrown into disorder. Distracted if it's political. Shaken in one seat. Right? So Jesus is not happy about Judas's betrayal. There are those who say that, um, the, well, it's called double predestination. Um, this is, some reformed people believe this. That God makes some people to save them and he makes some people to damn them. And Hope you can figure out which one you are. <laughs> which denies John's gospel, in particular John 3, 16 and 17, right? For God so loved the world, right? Because not only do they say God made some people and, and chose not to save them, but also then that means that he didn't die for them. Because if he died for them, but he didn't save them, that, well, that doesn't work, right? So then he didn't also die for them. Whereas we would say the conflict isn't whether Jesus died to save all people from their sins, because that, that's universal atonement is what we call it. Objective universal atonement. Uh, the, the, pro- the problem is, the crux of the matter, if you like, the cross of it, is that some people refuse to believe that message of salvation. It's not God's fault, it's man's fault. Um, of course, you can flip that and say then, well, why does anybody believe? And the answer is, by God's grace and mercy, right? He gives us Holy Spirit that we would believe and trust in him. Um, election is meant to be it is a mystery as to why some people refuse to believe or fall from faith if you like, that's a mystery, we don't understand that, Um, but we also don't understand why anybody believes it in the first place because it's really not all that believable 
Of all the faiths, all the religions in the world, Christianity is the least believable. I mean, even the Hindu thing kind of makes sense. Like there's all these like weird mystical things all over the place that have like 15 arms and or whatever. I guess it makes some sense. I don't know. But that God would become man and die for the people. That God would die. There's, there isn't. There's God's dying, but not like Zeus doesn't die, for example. The big guy doesn't die. So um, why did I bring this up? Oh, in regards to Judas. So God knows that Judas will betray him um, and that, that Judas refuses to believe despite having heard the word. Remember, there's all sorts of notes on here you can read, but I'm just kind of talking to you. So you can use these on your own as well. I'll refer to it periodically as we go through. Um, remember, Jesus is an, or excuse me, Judas is an apostle or a disciple. He's been with Jesus the whole time for three years. It's just like with Pharaoh. We talked about Pharaoh, I think, last week, did we? Yeah. How many times did, did God preach to Pharaoh? He sends Moses how many times? Ten. Yeah, ten times, over and over. Let my people go, that they may go worship. And Pharaoh over and over says, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to do what you tell me, right? That's just refusing to listen to the messenger whom God sent. And say, well, maybe Moses could have been more persuasive. <laughs> no, that's not the problem. The problem is that Pharaoh had hardened his heart. And then God, knowing that Pharaoh refused to believe, actually made it even worse by hardening his heart further so that Pharaoh would become so obsessed with trying to keep these people that he would chase them down and God would destroy him. And then that becomes the model, really, for all of Israel and even for us as to how God defeats our enemies. Is Pharaoh and his host being drowned in the Red Sea. It's, the, it's a type of baptism. It's, it's, it also points backwards towards the flood, right? And, of course, um, and then um, Egypt and Pharaoh end up being the, the type of the devil and this world this kingdom and the slavery and bondage that we experience in this world to sin, right? So you say, well, that's terrible. He should have just saved Pharaoh. Okay, I guess. I'm just telling you what the kids argue with me about. <laughs> Maybe you haven't thought this hard about it anymore because you're too smart now, right? It's the same thing with Judas. It's the same thing with Judas. Like, why would he allow one to betray him, right? Why, did, why didn't he just convert him? But that the scripture would be fulfilled See, this is what God does. When, when um, who is it, St. Paul, it says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. What does he mean by all things? Good and bad. Yeah, good and bad, that's right. And you know, some of you are old enough that you probably can look back at your life and say, well, that was a pretty terrible time, um, but I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did. You know, I had to go through a pretty rough patch and yet I learned something about myself or about this world or um, about managing money or whatever it is, right? Um, or had I continued on that path, I wouldn't be here today in this place and doing this thing now, right? In the moment, you can't say... Yeah, a blessing in disguise is a good way to put it too. Yeah. I was looking for a reference in the Old Testament. Yeah. Well, I know we were going to talk about it, Ron. Oh, you're the he, Ron. Okay, if you haven't been, Ron is the best. He, he gets us right where we want to go. So <laughs> l- let's do it now, Ron. Psalm 41. I'll put it up on the screen. Right now, because I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm talking about how God foreknows, and uh, that's what I was getting to. And he, he doesn't will Judas to betray him, but he knows Judas will betray him, right? In his foreknowledge. And so he can anticipate through the word of the psalmist David, he puts Jesus, he puts words about what's going to happen in the mouth of the psalmist David. Does David understand in the way, like John, does John understand what's happening all the time? No, but he remembers. Does, this, does the psalmist know what this hymn is about in the moment? Well, let's look at it. We'll see. All right. So it starts out pretty nice. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. Quote, when will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to be seen to see me, He speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. 
An evil disease, they say, clings to him, and now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. All right, but we got to get to the but because we need the gospel here. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up. I mean, this is death and resurrection language, right? He lies down and then he rises up. That I may repay them. By this, I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Now, we've talked about this. Thanks, Ron, for reminding me what I was actually trying to do. Because I, I was getting a little lost in the weeds, so <laughs> brought me back. Oh, it's this verse right here, right? Verse 9. Yeah, verse 9. There it is. My own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Right? So... Um, we've talked about this extensively, but it's always worth remembering that um, the gospel writers don't quote the whole psalm, even if they expect you to know the whole psalm. Right? So this is like saying, if I just said, God loved the world, you would probably think, oh, like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you get the whole quote, but I can just throw out like a little bit and you're like, okay, you bring, you bring in all this, uh, it's not baggage, because that would be negative, right? What would be the positive? I don't know. But like, there are phrases that we can throw out, and you can, it brings in a whole host of meaning attached to that phrase. Does that make sense? So that when there's a citation in the scriptures, um, they are kind of, they're trying to draw your attention to the whole psalm. That's why I wanted to read the whole thing. Because there's all sorts of things there. That it's not just this little quote that they pull out, but it's the whole context of the psalm that's going on, right? You're hearing about all the enemies of Jesus and how they've wished ill upon him, that they want to kill him. You know, that even when they say here, now that he lies down, now that he's dead, he will rise up no more, right? I mean, that's what they wished upon him, of course, those who killed him. And how they gathered iniquity, how they're trying to end his name, they're trying to make his name perish. This comes up even in the book of Acts, where... Um, Peter and John are preaching outside of the, on, the, on Solomon's portico outside the temple. And the Pharisees are all, or actually it was the Sanhedrin, were all upset with him because he's like, they're like, well, not only that they, did they heal the beggar, but then they said, you keep preaching from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And they're like, you can't do that anymore. You can preach the Old Testament, but you can't use Jesus' name. They want him to stop using his name. They're like, how can we stop using his name? Because his name has... All, you know, remember when they, he was, they were commissioned, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, so I send you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to baptize, right? So they have the name. The name is where the power is, if you like, because the name has the authority. So they even want the name to end. I don't know. Is there other stuff in there that's worth pointing out? My enemies speak evil of me. Does, he, does Jesus consider the poor Poor, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, for they shall be comforted. comforted, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, back in our text, there was the reference to, oh, well, we haven't read it yet. Never mind. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, when, they, when, when he says that Judas will betray him, they're like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were, Judas is a good guy. He collects, the all, he collects the money and he gives to those who have need. Okay. The poor. But who is the one who actually cares for the poor? Is it Judas? No. It's actually Jesus. That's right. Is there more things there in Psalm 41 you wanted us to see, Ron? <laughs> I would see in verse 4, David says, uh, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it has that, like, it's a, it's, it's a psalm that we can pray, right? Then it also has Jesus, it's Jesus' prayer as well at the same time. Which is kind of confusing, I suppose. And of course, it's David's psalm because he wrote it. <laughs> right? Didn't it say a psalm of David? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a psalm of David. So uh, it can, we call that multivalent. It'd be like if we had a balance. Well, it's the balance, right? And, you have the, and then maybe there were curtains in front of that, right? And all of that is with the coverings. That's the, it's a word, I'm sorry. Multivalent. Anybody heard that? Okay. I feel like I'm doing stand up but it's a dead room. It's probably because you haven't been together in a room together for so long. 
Or either that or I'm boring. All right, so let's get back to the text then. Thanks, Ron, for jump, making me jump there. I meant to do that at the beginning. So, um, They looked at one another, and they were perplexed about whom he spoke, right? So John's writing this. He was there. I would say he's the one leaning on Jesus' breast. But he's telling us, at the time, we didn't really know what was going on. Right? He's telling us things that would happen, but we didn't understand. Right? Because there's this guy leaning on Jesus' breast. And then probably in our picture, who do you think Simon Peter is? Probably the guy right on the other side, right? Yeah, I guess. It's this guy and that one. Right? And then this is always a question that people ask about Revelation. Well, I want to sit closer to Jesus in the heavenly throne room. You know? It's like, it's not that big of a deal. Yes, go ahead. I kind of about the picture here, too. Yeah. Just like um, Michelangelo's picture there. This is copying Da Vinci. Da Vinci, yeah. Okay. Um, it's a copy of Da Vinci. In Israeli, or in old Israel, the people laid down to eat. Right. Yeah, the picture is, in, is very Western. Yeah, so if you haven't seen this, you've probably seen it like um, in like a, I don't know, like King and I or some, where you see Arabians, they still do this, where they have a pillow and they lean against the pillow. Right? And then they'll put the grapes in their mouth. Yeah. It's very uh, Greek or Roman. Greeks like, and I Romans do that too. Yeah, that reclining. I don't know. Is it better for your digestion than sitting on a chair? <laughs> Probably. Did, have you seen the Passion movie, the Mel Gibson Passion movie? Yeah, it's one of those movies you watch once and then you never want to watch again. You appreciate it, but you don't ever want to see it again. Because um, it's pretty brutal, right? Almost like pornographic brutality. Not really... Not in a sense of sexual pornography, just like violent pornography. It's the same. Just evil, like, no, I don't need to see all that. But uh, there's the scene in the beginning when he's a boy, right? And he's making a chair and, and Mary's like, what's that? Oh, is that okay? <laughs> Which is pretty funny because they didn't sit on chair. There's Mel Gibson trying to add a little humor right at the beginning. But. All right. Jesus invented the chair. <laughs> the four-legged chair. It's awesome. Why does it have three legs? Uh, that, that would be a stool. That's yeah. right. Yes. Right. So, and, and it's true, Ron. The picture is probably not quite accurate. One, because he's leaning on him, not because he's, they're leaning. Because they would lean on one another, too. Like family, like husband and wife would do that. Yeah. So they're all sitting on, on chairs or standing. Looks like somebody's arguing, right, over on the left. I always wonder what's going through the painter's mind when they do that. All right. And why is there bread under the table? I guess that's for the dogs. Okay. <laughs> Extra bread. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him. And who is him that he's motioning to? John. To the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? To ask who it was of whom he spoke. So maybe the picture is not too bad that John or the disciple is on Jesus. Everybody else is kind of spread out. And Peter's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then, then John gives us kind of a little inner dialogue that he has, I think, just he and Jesus, right? Just to kind of figure it out, and he records it here. Because it's not recorded elsewhere, so it makes sense. All right, so let me scroll up a little bit. Yeah, leaning back on so he, I don't know, he gets really close. It's like, okay, who are you talking about? That kind of thing, right? All right, good. What's that? Oh, see, they're doing it right there. They don't want us to hear. And you leaned in. I saw it. Thanks for the example. Maybe his phone was a message. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't pertain to the rest of us, so you just lean over. It was a good example. Thank you. All right, so 25 through 29. I could call on somebody, but I'd be mean. Somebody read it? Yeah. Sure. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the scariest son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly. Jesus told him, but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Yeah. 
Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas was taken bread, had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Yeah. Oh, you didn't scroll far enough, did I? That's all right. You read a little bit further than I meant to. Uh, okay, so now we have Psalm 41 again, right? In verse 26. Yeah, so the dipping of the piece of bread when I dipped it. Now, again, he's just saying that to John, right? Did John understand it in the moment? No, he doesn't. He even tells us this much. Nobody, nobody knew the reason why he said this, right? Why, did he, why is he quoting that psalm? That's a kind of a weird psalm. We never really did figure out what that one was all about, <laughs> right? Okay, and then he dips the bread. He gives it to Judas, the Iscariot, the son of Simon. It, it sounds like it's all happening, like, right immediately, but given that John doesn't quite get it, I think, you know, He's just compressing the timeline of the events, right? For us now, okay, this is how it happened, and it's, it's Judas, right? But then... That must mean that Judas was sitting next to Jesus. Well, he's sitting close enough that he could be distributed. Like you said, it was uh, like a round table, you know? We are the knights of the round table. <laughs> That's a movie quote. Anyway, uh, let's see. So after the piece, what you do, do quickly. Um, I don't have much to say about that, that quickly. The only, I think the only other time that word is used is in Hebrews 13, and it's just, um, Timothy's going to come to you quickly. So it's like, just get it over with already, basically, I think is what Jesus is saying. And again, he's agitated. I mean, he's actually probably ups, quite upset about this whole thing. He knows it's coming. Um, we talked about this a little bit before, but I wanted to expand on it a bit, that just because Jesus knows that something's going to happen doesn't mean he's comfortable with the idea. Right? We see this when he prays in the garden in particular, right? I mean, his soul is troubled. Now is my soul troubled, you know, he's, he says. Right? He's so troubled is he's, he has this medical phenomenon where he's sweating droplets of blood. Some, I have a medical journal article that talks about this. It actually does happen. You can become so, like, stressed out that your blood vessels burst and it comes out your pores. It's weird, right? Weird stuff. Right? But it's blood and water is part of the theme going on there. So, you know, he does that. But I'm, he's, he's clearly troubled and um, agitated. And that's where Mel Gibson gets it right. I mean, Jesus is not happy. It's not like, maybe that's, maybe that's the fault of the hymn. You know, Gerhardt's hymn, A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth. You're like, oh, that means he just kind of trotted along to the cross and he was so happy about the whole thing. No, no, it's terrible, right? It was brutal, it was terrible. Uh, it doesn't mean he didn't do it willingly. But, it also, but we see in the garden in particular the way that he's struggling between the will of God and then the will of the flesh, right? His body. That no, nobody, no true person is going to willingly suffer that kind of hurt and harm to his body, even death. Right? Not, I shouldn't say willingly. Um, who's going to embrace it? What, what do we call it? There's actually a, a, a psychological disorder for people who enjoy inflicting pain upon themselves. You know what it's called? It starts with an M. Masochist. Masochism. That's right. Masochist. Yeah. Uh, and it, 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 sometimes though, it's, uh, this is big with the kids today is, uh, what do they call it? Cutting. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so you have psychological pain, but then you inflict physical pain to distract you from the psychological pain. They're both pain. It's a different kind of pain, but it's pain. It's painful. So, you know, so push through the, the pain with other pain. Now, this is why I ride my bike, you know, each day is that, it's not always fun or pleasant, but you know, if I'm under any stress, it actually helps reduce the stress by having this, it's like offsetting or something, right? I guess. Yeah, Ron. I just want to comment on that. Um, my wife is very um, sensitive to being, getting a shot. Oh yeah, great. But if she feels pain in another part of the body at the same time, you don't feel either one. So like, like pinch yourself somewhere else? Yeah. Right. Then you go, yeah. It's just, so it's like distracting? So that's different than masochism, where you just enjoy pain. Well, this is, this is I listened to an evolutionary biologist yesterday um, as we were driving home, seeing my family, birthday party. And uh, I can't remember exactly the statistic, but it's something like every second you've got 10,000 different inputs coming in through all your senses like physically, but you can only pro- your brain can only process something like 30 or 40 of those. 
So it has to prioritize which thing it pays attention to at any given moment. You know this, right? You know, it, like I had, we had an experience where uh, I was paying attention to other things and then the cars in front of me are braking and then I recognize that and immediately all of my sensory perception flips to like rear view mirror, braking, change lanes, you know, because we don't want to get into an accident, right? And so a brain is powerful enough to recognize, okay, well, the things you were paying attention to don't really matter at this moment. These are the things you should be being, paying attention to, you know, uh, but you can't process everything at once. So that's interesting, but it's not really relevant, I guess, to our lesson. But um, what we're ta- we were talking about pain, yeah. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is still upset, and I think that that does seem to be a pretty abrasive statement. You know, what you're going to do, do it quickly. You know, I mean, he's, I, maybe even you would even just say he's angry at Judas at this point and his betrayal, as well he should be, right? Because he died, he's going to die for Judas, and Judas would rather rather than be forgiven, he wants to take matters into his own hands, which he literally does later on. Um, let's see. What else do we want to talk about there? All right, so no one knew the reason. We talk about that. So the, the point, I mentioned this when we, at the beginning of the class, but now here's where it spins out. This, John is hinting again that he's an eyewitness. He saw these things happen, but he's acknowledging that nobody understood why. Um, and then that's, that's really one of the... Uh, importances of the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost for them, because it gives them what, what we call infinite recall, or if you prefer, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, total recall. That's a joke. Yeah. No, but it's true. I mean, that, that's what happens, is that all these things that Jesus said and did that they, bore, that they saw and they heard, that their brain was storing up, but yet they didn't have, like, um, what do you call it, conscious acknowledgement of these things. Then they remembered Oh yeah, that's what he said. Now we get it, you see. And, the, and how, do, how does the Holy Spirit open to them the scriptures? By going to the temple and hearing the Old Testament, but now through the lens of everything they saw, saw in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So they go back and reread the Old Testament, but now understanding that everything that they saw and that they experienced, everything that was um, and then everything that the Holy Spirit bore witness through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms bore witness to Jesus, just as he said. And, and this is really our exercise. If you do the daily prayer, the congregation of prayer, this is what we try to do this every day, is after we get through kind of like the basic just data about what's happening in the story or in the reading, then to say, well, but what does this tell us about of Jesus and who Jesus is? Or how does Jesus fulfill the, prophet, the promise made here? Or how is this unlike Jesus? You know, like Korah and, and all the rebellion going down into the pit, right? How is that unlike Jesus? Well, they go down into the pit dead or alive. They go down alive to die, right? Jesus goes into the pit dead and comes out alive, right? So it's, there's an inverse. So, um, that's what they do too. So yeah, his heart's in motion. Now they ask these questions. Some of, this is unique to John here, this expression about... Judas being in charge of the money box. I don't think anybody else records that. I might be wrong. Uh, where is that? Verse 29, right? Uh, yeah, we, we actually heard this back in John 12 at the beginning. Judas, when Judas said, maybe we should go back to that. So it was just, just back in March. You remember. <laughs> but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. And <laughs> him said, quote, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? All right. Now, um, that's another hint that maybe one of the traditions during Passover was actually to distribute to the poor. It was a special time of giving alms to the poor, to care for the poor was during the Passover. But he, this he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. All right. Now that, that's all added. John didn't know that at the time, right? But later on, oh, that's why Jesus said that. He wanted 300 denarii for his pocket. All right, make sense? All right, good. Right. Oh, I didn't go back to where I was supposed to go. Let's see. Dun, 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 dun. There we go. So that he should get some of the poor. Right? Buy those things we need for the feast. So they, they're hypothesizing. They're trying to figure it out. But they don't know at this point. All right, we've said enough on that probably. But then verse 30, this verse is just brilliant uh, in particular. Having received the piece of bread, 
So the sign of the betrayer. He then went out immediately, and it was night. All right. And that's, that's if you're going to do a dramatic reading, you say, and it was night. And you stop, and you stare. Because you're supposed to pay attention to that. It's a, it's a pretty dramatic statement. It doesn't sound all that dramatic. It seems like just, oh, yeah, whatever. It's still nighttime. Like, no. Remember, John 1, there's a whole bit about light and darkness. Do you remember? Those darkness cannot comprehend the light. Yeah, right. And then uh, this is the, e- there's, there's all sorts of references to the night that he was betrayed. You hear this every week, of course, from 1 Corinthians. And I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to the, the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. So you see the betrayal and the expression night are put together. So we have night and betrayal. And what comes in into the night and betrayal? Jesus, who is the light, and is he the betrayer? No, he's the opposite. What's the opposite of betrayer? Betrayed. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Right? He's the one who loves, not betrays, right? So we have it there. Um, but we've also had it all through John's gospel. So I'll give you, I'm just going to jump really quick on the screen. You'll have to just hold on to your seats. But this is a way to get through things a little bit quicker with the screen. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming. When is it? The night he was betrayed. That's right. When no one can work. Also, that could be the last day, right? Yeah. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we have light and darkness. Jesus is the light. The world is the darkness. We have the day. That's when the Lord is with us. But be prepared for the night when no one can work, which I think is John 11, verse 10. Uh, Nope. This is regarding Lazarus, right? But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I go that I may wake him up. And they're like, what? (laughs) If he sleeps, he's just going to be fine. Why do we need to go wake him up? Of course. There's another one of these parenthetical notes from John. Now you're starting to see more of these, right? Oh, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking a rest and sleep. You see? Just parentheses, by the way. Of course, you all know that. Lazarus is dead. Okay. (laughs) That's That's what we're talking about. Oh, we could have gone back a little bit more. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. That is, walks with Jesus, right? Who is the light, okay? Because he sees the light of this world. So there you go. There's another one. And then uh, we're going to see it again here in a moment in, in chapter 12. So skip ahead a little bit. You see it there, 35. A little while longer, the light is with you, referring to himself. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Right? So stay with, stay with me. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Ooh. All right. But light and darkness is a theme that's also here in verse 31. Did we already read this? We haven't read this yet, have we? This is coming up. Did we just, what did I just say? We just no, finished 30. 30. Verse 30. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm in, back in chapter 12. I'm sorry. That's why I'm like, what? That's not right. Chapter 12 and chapter th- uh, 13 are very similar in a lot of ways. They parallel each other. Okay, there we go. Verse 30. Good. Uh, where's my scroller? There it is. Okay, verse 30. And it was night. But notice what happens. You know, New King James puts a big break here. Does your Bible have a paragraph break at verse 31? Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember these paragraph breaks, punctuation, paragraph breaks, all these headings, those are all artificial. They were all added later. So verse 30 is, is meant to roll right into verse 31. Yeah. This uh, NIV has a reference to Luke 22, verse oh, yeah. 53. Yeah. Are you going to read it for us? For the last phrase where it says that it was night, um, verse 53 of Luke 22 says, Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand in me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Yeah. Yeah, so that light and darkness theme is, is also in the other Gospels. But it's like, if you remember the spring and last year, it's just 
run through the whole gospel. It was in the prologue and then it just keeps getting repeated, light and dark. Remember, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus in chapter three? At night. At night, that's correct, yeah. So, and then Jesus illuminates his heart, right? And then Nicodemus shows up at night again at the cross, right? That's the next time we meet him is at the cross and he's there at night to take Jesus or at sunset to take Jesus and lay him in the tomb. Well, actually, he comes while it, you know, at, in the hour of darkness, right? Or thereabouts. All right, so um, this part, we really, we could spend a lot of time on it, but we heard a lot about it today already in church, which wasn't intentional, but there you go. These things overlap. So 31 through uh, 35. Who wants to read? If you don't start, I'm just going <laughs> to... When he was gone, Thank Jesus you. said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. <laughs> My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, but you notice it's actually in a very different context here than it was um, in our gospel reading in church today. Uh, so here, this new commandment is given in the context of the foot washing, of the betrayal of Judas, and then of his preaching on the night he was betrayed. Right? Um, and so I think he has a little bit different motivation at hand. But right before that is all this language about glory. We've talked a lot about glory. Um, in the gospel, the glory of God is revealed at the cross of Jesus Christ. But for an Old Testament person or a person of the scriptures like these disciples, when they think of glory, what are they thinking of? Old Testament, particularly. Well, I'm thinking about, oh, like a glory, the triumphal entry. No, but I'm thinking of the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament? Yeah, like with Moses, with his... What's that? With the Ten Commandments. With the Ten Commandments, when he came down with, the, with God's law. How about the... It's actually called the Shekinah in Hebrew, the glory cloud, right? And what? It was a bright, shining cloud by day, and at night it looked like... Fire. Fire, right? Yeah, the light was like fire coming out of the cloud. Every time God was present with his people, there was his glory, and it's, his bright, and it's brightness. It's connected to light, right? So light and darkness. So they knew that God was present with them even in the night, right? In the wilderness. And in the wilderness at night, it was probably really dark. <laughs> they didn't have light pollution like we do. Where it's just never dark. It's not even dark here. You have to go up to Northwoods to get like, and even then it's not entirely dark. I don't know. The farther north you go, the more dark it gets at night, right? But also the more stars you see. So it's a bouncing act. Right. So we have the, the darkness here. So we have, we just said it was night, but then what does Jesus talk about? light again, right? But, but this time by the sense of glory. And I, and I know that um, it's so much fun to read, read these, uh, it's almost philosophical, loopy statements, right? The glory, how does it go? The Son of Man is glorified, God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, then God will glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately, right? You think that's complicated, just wait. Because <laughs> that's, that's anticipating a whole discourse which will come in... Chapter, where? I probably put it on your sheet here. Chapter 17. Uh, but we'll hear, he'll hint at it again in chapter 14 and chapter 15, chapter 16. Bottom of page one, though, you see, it's the major theme of chapter 17. So we're not going to read it right now, but I'll just give you a hint. There it is. This is what's called the high priestly prayer. The Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. Sound familiar? As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which, which you have, I had with you before the world was. Wow. And then, I mean, there's more glory in here. Where's the rest of the glory come? Verse 10. There it is. All mine is yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And then in verse 22, there's more glory. 
Yes, there it is. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Uh, so you get the idea, right? Just wait till we get to chapter 17. I have no idea how long it's going to take to get through that. <laughs> it's, 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 it sounds convoluted. It's really not that complicated. It's just, um, this is what you do with like children, right? You have a pretty simple idea, but then what you have to do is you have to keep, and you have, you have to start like way out here, and you have to keep working your way into it so that otherwise you don't understand the fullness of what's at the heart of, of the matter. So that's what Jesus does. So he, he comes at it from all these perspectives until you finally get to the heart of the matter, which is his suffering and death, so that you understand what it's all about. All right. Turn the sheet over, page two. Uh, I did mention there Philippians 2, verse 9, because what's also at play here is another theme that's been going on for some time um, in John's gospel, and which he's also been talking about here in chapter 13, which is humiliation and exaltation and descent and ascent. So we've had, I, I didn't give you all of the references because we've, you know, we'd be here till tomorrow, but the, uh, in John's gospel. Um, but humiliation and exaltation and descent and ascent are two different things. All right, they're not exactly equivalent. Not in John's gospel, not throughout the New Testament. Humiliation is like what we say in the, in the creed. He humbled himself to be born of the virgin. Or how do we go in the creed? To be born. Oh, I'm thinking of the te deum, which is a creed, but anyway. Humbled himself to be born of the virgin. How's it going in the te deum? Anybody know that by heart? We haven't sung matins in a long time. All right. Um, humiliation refers to his being made man. Uh, suffering and dying, but then the cross is the beginning of his exaltation because he is lifted up, right, on the cross. And then, of course, he, even though he descends into hell, that's part of his exaltation because he's really going, as Jude and First Peter say, to declare victory to the souls in prison. So, so he's already, that's part of his exaltation, plus there's 40 days and then ascension and then the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, whereas ascent and descent is a little bit different. He descended and then ascends. So that's referring not necessarily to his cross, but it could refer to his ascent into heaven, right? So anyway, why did I bring all that up? Oh, because First Peter, or excuse me, Philippians. Let, us, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. This is that humiliation, right? Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, there it is, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cro- of the cross. Now, what's his humiliation there? How is it, what's it referring to? Like just becoming man or rather doing the will of the Father, right? So his humbleness is revealed in that he does what the Father gave him to do, even though it means his death. So that's what true humility is is doing what God says. Because in order to do what God says, what do you have to set aside? Pride. What's that? Pride. Yeah, pride. Yeah, just set aside your own will, right? Not my will, but your will be done. Think of the creed. Thy will be done. So he's constantly teaching us humility to say, look, I know you think very highly of yourself, right? And we're taught today everybody's supposed to have high (laughs) self-esteem, Right? That's fine. You think, you know, respect your body, take care of yourself, right? All that. But when it comes to your relationship to God, it's like, no, he's God and you're a creature, okay? So, or he's father, you're son. So I know you're 19, but, you know, tough luck. <laughs> tough luck. As long as you're in my house. Blah, blah, blah. We're always in God's house, so there you go. All right. Um, yeah, let's finish out this thought and then we'll, that's probably a good place to hold up. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God, the Father, right, also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue confess, like grant today, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. Now, so notice, who humbles himself? 
Jesus, who exalts Jesus, God the Father, right? So that's a little bit different than um, maybe what you think, because you think, well, Jesus descends and Jesus ascends. But the picture that Paul gives, and I think it's the same as John, is that Jesus obeys the Father's will, but it is the Father who raises up Jesus from the dead. So what that means then, there's other ways that it's said in the New Testament, is that God the Father's God the Father sees Jesus' death as, accept, as the acceptable sacrifice for sin. And it's God the Father who raises Jesus from the dead, having, Jesus having finished the work that he was sent to do. So it's this, it's this relationship with the Father and the Son that's interesting. Uh, but Jesus doesn't raise himself from the dead. It's the Father who raises him from the dead, which is interesting, right? It's like, Jesus can't raise himself? Well, no, he actually can't. Because he died. <laughs> what can a dead person do? Even a dead God. Yeah, very interesting, right? It's a little bit of a mystery. A lot of a mystery. You were going to say something wrong? Well, that's absolutely true. Yeah, because what we're seeing Jesus then, and this, this is probably actually a nice bow for what, we, what I introduced at the beginning, is that the way that Jesus goes is a way that we can go, but we can only go the way that Jesus goes in that he's already gone there first. Do I need to say that again? All right. So think about like what I talked about in the sermon today. Does Jesus want you to live a noble, virtuous life according to his law? Answer? Yes. Yes. Right? Can you do it? No. no. Not of yourself. You can do it, but only in that he's already done it. Right? So he's done it. He's blazed the path. Now obedience isn't for the sake of life. Obedience is for the sake of love. There's a difference. You don't have to obey God's law in order that you live forever because that's Jesus already accomplished that. Now the law just shows us the will of God in order that we would love one another, but only because we've already first been loved by Jesus. So um, you might say then, I mean, this is a nice place to kind of tidy it up, that Jesus is the trailblazer, right? And like, um, I don't know if like you were going to you're going to build a road in the, in the Brazilian rain, in the Amazonian rainforest, right, in Brazil. What do you got to go through first? The jungle. First, don't build a road through the rainforest. It ruins the rainforest. But, uh, like, go around, please. I, I'm not a super ecological person, but uh, one road, it, it affects lots of, of acreage because now you have access throughout the whole rainforest for everything, for hunting and all sorts of things, and deforestation. So, anyway, build around. But, yeah, you have to, like, I don't, they have, like, excavators and things, right? And they have like special, like, like huge machines that, that just are like a bulldozer, except they've got cutters to like cut the trees and everything. It's just like, just cut this swath right down the middle. That's what Jesus is for you. <laughs> You've got this, this confusing, mixed up world of sin. It's disorderly and chaotic. And then Jesus shows you this narrow path, which is the way, right? And he shows you the light. He's the path, he's the way, he's the light. And this, this is the way. And there's no other way. You can't, can't make your own path. Uh, read uh, Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress for that. There's actually an illustration of it in there. There's a lot of things wrong with that book. I did, what did we do, like 10 episodes in the Band Books podcast on Pilgrim's Progress? And uh, there's a lot of things that we disagree with, but there are some things that are very good, and that's one of them. It's like people who go off the path, what happens to them? They get lost. Right? You stay on the path, stay with Jesus, and he'll show you the way through. And that's really what, uh, oh, I've got to go back to it. I told you I'd tidy it up here. John 13, right? 35, maybe? Yeah, that's what this is all about right here. So maybe we'll have to revisit Peter's betrayal. But that's what this commandment is about. Is to, it's not a commandment as in, here, I'm going to give you a rule, and now you've got to figure out how to keep it. Which sometimes that's how rules work. <laughs> Um, but no, it works differently than that. It's like, here's the rule, but guess what? I've already done it. Right? And the way is, the, the, the high places have been made low, the low places have been made high, that's a road language, right? From Isaiah. Right? The rough places have been made a plain. All the ways. The way is straight. It's not, it's not like doing those uh, hairpin turns up in the mountains, right? It's just straight through. Right? The bulldoze. Uh, it's Jesus, the bulldozer thing. It seems like it should be a children's book, right? I feel like yes. I'm thinking of I, I'm, I have this title of 
Well, probably it's not something we would sing the uh, song title like, Jesus is my trailblazer. Jesus is my trailblazer. <laughs> He's my bulldozer. I like it. Um, <laughs> but but He's already gone the way. So now the way, is, the way is not nearly what it was before, which was impossible actually before. But now, he comes along, he's like, come with me. All right, and he goes before you. All you have to do is follow. <laughs> which is a lot different than like, okay, you're supposed to go over there, but I'm not going to tell you how to get there. Good luck. See you in a bit. See if you can get there. Right? You see the difference? Yeah. Right. But uh, Peter doesn't understand this yet, and that's what we'll, we'll, we'll pick up there next week. Maybe finish, we'll finish out this, first, this last thought, but then we'll get into Peter's betrayal. So keep your sheets, because I'll refer to that again, and then we'll dig into the next part, chapter 14. All right, let's close with prayer. And we'll depart. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given your son Jesus, who is our, the light for our darkness, who shows us the way um, through the cro- uh, crooked paths of this world. We ask that you would keep us with him and that you grant us our, his spirit. Um, so that we would always know um, his love and that in that love we could love one another and walk together uh, in love towards your heavenly kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.